about as nervous as I have ever been. Amen. Thank you. About anything that I've ever done. Um, because of what I'm going to say this morning. Uh, it's, it's been a long time coming for me to share this with you. Um, and I have been in prayer a, a, a lot, put it that way, about um, this message. Um, I want you to know that what I say is not aimed at any one person. It's not aimed at any group within our church. I think it's something that we as a church need to hear and wrestle with. And if you haven't surmised already, yeah, it's about, it's about a subject that's rather controversial in our modern Christian experience. I've been thinking about this for a long, long time, and a lot of it just comes from my observation of people, Christians who have thrown away the pure principles in the New Testament of how we ought to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ for the sake of a practice in their life. And have heard arguments, have watched people storm out of rooms over this subject. I want you to know also from the outset that while I have given this a great deal of thought and have searched the scriptures um, there's, there's no one answer to this dilemma that we have in our Christian walk here at Fellowship, Christian, Christian Academy, Fellowship Bible Church. Um, and I don't pretend to have the answers, but God's word does. And let us not forget that. We stand or sit here this morning because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and for no other reason. We're not here because we own the corner market on any given truth or application of a truth in our own lives or in the lives of everybody here. We stand and sit here together because together we believe this book, that this is a supernatural book and it comes from God, and we order our lives by it. I, I need to let you know that um, much of what I'm going to say this morning is borrowed I've been thinking about this for a long, long time, and when I was out at the Shepherds Conference just a couple of weeks ago, I went to a seminar with an unusual title, and he said in that seminar what I've been thinking for the past two or three years of my life in such a clear and concise way that I just, I grabbed my pen and I wrote as fast and as furiously as I could because I connected exactly with what he was saying. And some of what I will tell you this morning is worded in that way. It's, um, it's from me, it's from my heart, but I also need to give that little disclaimer that some of what I'm gonna say is borrowed from him. His name was Austin Duncan. He's a pastor out at Grace Community Church. And what he was talking about in that seminar had nothing to do with what I wanna talk about this morning. The subjects were about as far apart as you can get them. But the principles of what he was saying is exactly what I wanted to communicate this morning. Um, I also want to let you know that because I've given this so much thought, I wrote out a lot of what I wanted to say. Because sometimes when I get talking, I say things that I don't mean to say. Not that that ever happens to you, but it happens to me. 
and my thoughts that I wanted to convey in such a clear way end up not being conveyed that way. And so I apologize ahead of time. I am going to read some of this, actually most of it, because I want to get it right. Have I scared you yet? Fellowship Bible Church has the word Bible centrally located in its name for good reason. We understand together that the Bible is a unique book. It is the book from which we gain all of our understanding about God, all of our understanding about the history of this life, all of our understanding about theology and practice of the Christian life. And well, we should. We honor it. We obey it. We seek to live out its principles in everything that we do as a Christian. At least that's what we claim. And everybody who hear, heard me say that probably nodded your head and said, yes, amen, that's what we seek to do. And it's right to claim the authority of God's word. Absolutely. Paul said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's where we go to find out what we ought to do not, or not, ought not to do. Hebrews says the word of God is living. It's powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. David said, how can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to thy word. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Solomon said, whoever despises the word will be in debt to it, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The word of God is priceless. It's a treasure and it's where we need to go for the answers to the questions that come up in our lives. However, we, especially as well-taught believers, face a grave danger. The danger is when we misinterpret or twist the scripture to match or meet our preferences when it comes to the application of a principle that comes from the Bible. And I will be totally straightforward with you this morning and let you know and tell you plainly that what's driving this message to you from my heart is my observation of how we here at Fellowship Bible Church and others in other churches across the country treat each other in our conversations about and our reactions to Christian music. What I'm going to say this morning applies across the board to many, many types of issues like that. I'm actually not going to talk about music this morning. It's not my purpose. But I have to be honest and say that what caused me to go in this direction is concern for the health of our church, it's particularly in regards to our treatment of one another in conversation and indeed about music. Pastor Dan 
uh, in just a few weeks, is going to start a new series all about music. He's going to go through the scriptures from beginning to end. I don't know how many weeks he's going to take. He's done this once before in the life of our church. And my intent this morning is not to steal his thunder or to give you a biblical framework of studying specifically what the Bible says about music. That's going to be at a later date. I'm going to let him do that. And actually, I'm looking forward to it greatly, to listen and, and learn myself again what the scriptures say specifically about our relationship to music. My purpose this morning is to clearly send out a warning to you and to me to not go beyond what the scriptures say. We must not be guilty of saying, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hath not said. I'm going to throw down the gauntlet this morning. And like I said, this is not aimed at any person, any group. We are, we are divided in our ideas about music. That much is clear. And I'm speaking as much to you, wherever you stand, as I am to me. These principles apply to everybody. But I'm going to throw down the gauntlet and challenge you and myself to get away from the idea that if I want to find out what I believe about a certain subject, I'm going to run to the Christian bookstore and grab a book off the shelf. Because those shelves are lined with books with a variety of options about what you can believe about this, that, or the other thing. And they all claim that their way is the right way. Some of them are overlapping in their thoughts. Some of them are very exclusive in their thoughts. Some of them are simply attacks on somebody else's thoughts and ideas. All of them are confusing. Our source of truth for belief and practice is not the Christian bookstore. It's this book right here. This is where we need to go. This is where we need to start. This is where we need to stop. In our belief about anything in this life. For only there do we find true authority. The title of the sermon this morning is Discerning the Difference Between Principle and Practice. And what I'd like to do at this moment is simply define what I mean by that so we can move on a little bit. A principle. A principle is truth that is positively stated in the Bible. It's timeless. It is applicable. It never changes. It's authoritative. A principle will be true for people who lived 5,000 years ago. It will be true in exactly the same way today. It will be true 5,000 years from now if God waits that long. It is God's timeless truth. It's a principle that we must stand on, we must believe, we must reckon with in our own live, lives, and we need to teach it and preach it. That's a principle. It'll be true for people who live here in America. It will also be true for people who live in China or Africa or India. The principle will be the same for all people. It'll be true for those who are rich for those who are poor. It's God's word, and it's settled in heaven forever. It is that by which we will be judged by God. On the other hand, a practice. 
is a practical application of that very principle. It's what we do with it. It's how we live it out. It's a practical application of that truth that is positively stated in the scripture. A particular practice is not authoritative. It may or may not be applicable to all people. Particular practices are constantly changing through history and across cultural lines. And to be totally honest with you, practice for the most part is largely influenced by preference, opinion, bias, background, and cultural influence. It's where we live. We all grew up in different places. We all come from different backgrounds. The principle of scripture, no matter what the background, will be true for everybody. The practice of how we apply those principles to life will be different for everybody. They're not the same thing. And we, as Christians, must not be guilty of confusing those two things. The message that he gave out in California was about dating. Christian ideas of dating. And I want to use that example to show you how quickly a practice can overtake and take the place of a principle. There are a myriad of books on the shelf today that talk about the mess that we call dating today. And you could pick up any one of those books and you can find nuggets of truth in a lot of those books, but you will also find that they are different practices. Should we kiss dating goodbye? Should we use courtship instead of dating? Should we let our kids date at all? Should we have chaperones when they date? Should we set a particular age for when they date? Should we follow this book or that book? Should we follow this plan or that plan? This idea or that idea? This author or that author? We might say, nah, I'm just going to follow the Bible. All right? Which Bible method are you going to use for your dating? The title of his seminar, by the way, was, I can't find dating in the Bible, which was interesting. Well, let's see. How about, uh, let's turn to Exodus 2. Maybe we should use the Moses method. Exodus 2, 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, their wa uh, to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, Where is he? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him in to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. So maybe we should just find a guy with seven daughters, impress the socks off of him, and he'll give us a wife. It's a good dating method. Or how about Genesis 2? That's a good one. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21.
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man. And he brought her to the man and said to the man, this is now, or the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That'd be cool. Just go to sleep. Wake up and God made you a wife. It's biblical. Let's do it that way. How about uh, Deuteronomy 21? Here's a good one. Deuteronomy 21, verse 10. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head, and trim her nails. And she shall also remove the clothes of her captivity and shall remain in your house and mourn her father and her mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be a husband to her and she shall be your wife. Captive women. That's a good biblical dating method. I mean, I'm being absurd here, obviously. Well, maybe we use Solomon's way. If you can't choose one, just take a lot. How about Isaac? How about... Samson, didn't turn out so well for him. How about the Benjamites? How about Boaz? Kind of like Adam, he fell asleep and he woke up, the woman's at his feet. What are the principles that guide us in dating? Doesn't say courtship in here, does it? Doesn't say dating in here, does it? And yet God has been bringing men and women together for how many years and it seems to work out. God knows what he's doing. We need to follow principle. You can't just take some event that happened in the Bible and apply it nonsensically to what's going on today. You need a hermeneutical grid. You need to interpret correctly. You have to be able to, to discern principle, truth that is timeless, and directly apply and live by them. As soon as we start to add our preferences, our ideas, our biases, our backgrounds, we can come up with all kinds of crazy applications to what the Bible says. We can even put them into practice, write a book about it, expect that everybody's going to read that book and follow what we think. By the way, what are the principles that should govern dating? How about purity? Not just virginity, purity of mind, purity of heart, purity of body. Sanctification, the principle of honor, the principle of not defrauding one another, believers seeking to marry other believers, children honoring their mothers and fathers, understanding God's pattern for a, for a healthy marriage, understanding that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, understanding that divorce is neither biblical nor God-honoring and marriage is permanent, Understanding that raising children in the admonition and instruction of the Lord is critical. There's some principles. How about we teach them? Rather than find a book 
connect with that book and then make everybody else think that if they're not following that book, somehow they are not following the Holy Spirit in their lives. Principle and practice, they are different. Don't be guilty of turning your practice into biblical principle. Do not assume a biblical basis of an idea that the Bible does not support or provide. And further, and probably more important for us as a church, don't be guilty of casting judgment on a brother in Christ whose practice is different than yours. Do not call him immoral. Do not call him impure. Do not call him worldly. Do not say that he has no accountability before God. Do not say that he has no commitment before God and the church. Don't say that he's selfish. Don't say that he perpetuates a culture that's anti-God. Don't say that he's idolatrous. Don't say that he is in sin when there is no sin. To force a practice on another brother and to judge him based on that practice is to be externally religious, just like the Pharisees were. It's to show an assumed godliness on your part. It's to be elitist, fundamentalist, legalistic, and presumptive upon the Lord. Don't do it. Don't judge another brother based on your application of a principle. Teach the principle. We must know the difference between preference and principle, between methodology and theology. We stand on theology. We do not stand on methodology because they will change. If we don't get the difference between these two at best, we're going to be imbalanced as a church. We're going to be imbalanced as a, as a believer in Christ. At worst, we will cause major division within the church. And you know how much God loves division. It's not that he never mentioned it in the New Testament. Recognizing the difference between practice and principle is not easy. It takes thought. It takes study. It takes careful consideration of the issues. When we translate a Bible principle into an action or decision on our part, but still seek to call that action or decision a principle rather than an application, we do find ourselves in a position where we're saying to other people, this is what God says. When God has not said it, we need to be careful to study this book. One of the reasons that drove me to bring this message is because from my very early Christian experience, I have heard arguments about music. It happened in high school, happened in college, happened when I get out of college, and it's still happening today. And I hear so few people ever open this book and look at what it says. We argue from logic. We argue from preference. We argue from what is in our minds, our backgrounds, but we very rarely go to this book and read what God said. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that don't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We must also realize that it is possible 
not only possible, but it will be absolutely true that a single principle in the Bible can have multiple applications. People will apply the principle of truth in different ways, in different times, in different cultures, in different families. We know this to be true. But in fact, the New Testament is clear that there should be people in the church with differing applications. And in fact, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 9 are chapters that are devoted to that very subject. How do you handle it when somebody applies something differently than you? He's not talking about sin. He's talking about a practice. How do you practice your Christian life? There should be people with different practices, but who love each other extravagantly because we share a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for the sins of us all. That's what matters. If you think that your niche view on music, whatever it is, or anything else, is exclusively right, take a test. Test yourself. Does your view translate across time? Does your view translate across cultural barriers? Does your view translate across interdenominational lines, national borders? If you force your methodology and make your practice a principle, you will wreak havoc on the church and you will cause division. That's how it happens. God hates division. He has stated it that way over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. How important is body unity? We'll be talking about that toward the end. We need to take God's word seriously. We have to study to show ourselves approved, but allow for people to apply that in their lives in different ways. The Pharisees, as I mentioned before, burdened people with man-made regulations, and we must not be guilty of the same thing. Whether it's contemporary music, worship style, Christian versus secular education, homeschooling versus non-homeschooling, Bible versions and translations, clothing styles, haircuts, dating practices, smoking, drinking, you name it, add to the list. Know the Bible. Know what the Word of God says and order your life accordingly. Know the biblical principles that are eternal and unchanging and allow for people to apply them in different ways. Isn't that what Christian liberty is? Christian liberty is not about what I can and can't do. When people hear that phrase or that term, that's usually where they go. Well, can I do this? Am I allowed to do that? What's gonna, it has nothing to do with what you can or can't do. It has everything to do with how you treat your brother in Christ. It's about allowing others to practice their faith without condemnation from you. Read Romans 14 with me. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm sure when Pastor Dan gets to some of the parts of his exposition on music, this will come up. Seven through ten of Romans 14. It's just a small portion of it, but hear what it says. Not one of us lives for himself. We are not alone in this life. I'm with you. You're with me. We live together as a family. You're my brothers and sisters. 
We share a common bond in Christ. I don't live by myself, for myself. God placed me here with you. None of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we, all of us, live for the Lord. And if we die, we, all of us, die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Christian liberty, wisely practiced among us, will be exercised with a concern that others are better than me. That is what it's all about. It's showing preference to one another. Being humble and submissive to one another. Decisions made about matters that are either not revealed or not mandated in the scripture and are made an issue of sin is just plain wrong and we're doing the church great harm no matter which side of the fence you find yourself on. It's not right. So then, should we just throw our convictions out the window? Just forget about it? Of course not. We are all responsible before God to know God's word and apply it. That's your responsibility as a Christian before God. You need to study to show yourself approved. God has given gifted men to the church to teach us. We need to take that teaching, learn it, understand it, live it, and apply it. It's what we do. It's why we read the word of God, to know God, and apply it to every area of our life. And discerning the difference between the principles of truth and the practice of the Christian life is critical. Here's a challenge to help us think about whether we are understanding the difference between the two or not. If we hold to a conviction and we share that conviction with another person, do we tell them what that conviction is or do we show them where that conviction comes from? In my experience, most people tell it. They just say, this is the way it should be, rather than show a principle in scripture and say, I'd like you to read this, learn it, and understand it. So you can apply this to your life. Are you able to show others what you believe from the scriptures rather than just tell them this is what you should believe and do? Here's another challenge. Ask yourself if your convictions are even biblical. I've found myself guilty of that many a time where I have put a practice into place in my life and found out God doesn't even say anything about this. And yet I've elevated it in my own mind to, if I don't do this, I'm sinning. Are your convictions biblical or are they borrowed from other people? Convictions borrowed from someone else are going to be artificial in your life. They won't stand. When storms come, when tests come, they're going to fall because they're not yours. They come, they're rooted in someone else's idea. They're not rooted in the scripture. And on the flip side, don't let people borrow your convictions either. Why would you want to just live like me? I'm not Christ. 
I'm not God. Hopefully I'll be an example of godliness and righteousness in life. Pattern your life after the principles of truth in the scripture. Don't let other people borrow your convictions. Rather, show them biblical principle. Teach them how to formulate their own convictions. They're going to be better off. People who have not thought deeply about God's word will not have properly built convictions. They have to come from here. In contrast to that, if we do the other way and we become, you know, principle is replaced by practice, then we become legalists. There is no other way to say it. Legalism is when practice becomes more important than the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Legalism was absolutely condemned by Jesus Christ. You want to read how strong he was? Open Matthew 23 and read the whole chapter. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Because they tied up heavy burdens and laid them on the shoulders of people. They were man-made regulations. At the very beginning, he said, they sit in the seat of Moses, and when they speak the law, listen to them. For that is, that's God's word. But then he ripped them up one side and down the other because they added to that. The only letter of Paul in the New Testament that didn't have a really warm, fuzzy greeting like all the other ones was to the, to the Galatians. Who has bewitched you? And what was he talking about? Why, why was he not so warm and fuzzy? It's because they allowed legalism to creep back into their theology. I want you to turn to Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? They all knew that Jesus had died for them. That's what that's saying. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What would their answer be? Did they get saved by works or not? No, they were saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Then, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It was legalism. To stay saved, to be in God's good graces, you have to do this. No, you're in God's good graces because Jesus Christ paid for your sin. And the Spirit of God prays for you with words that cannot even be uttered. He's keeping you saved. That's his job. He's growing you. He's sanctifying you, not us. If something other than Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for sin, defines your life or defines our church, then something's wrong. We're off kilter. It needs to be corrected. Issues should not be the center of the church. We shouldn't be known as a church with conservative music or a church with contemporary music. We shouldn't be known as the church where they wear ties or don't wear ties. We, shouldn't be known, we should be known as the church that follows Jesus Christ. 
trusts in Jesus Christ and exercises our Christianity by loving one another completely. That's what he says. Don't let the issues define your life. Whatever music practice we choose or don't choose doesn't add or detract a single bit from what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Doesn't matter. Don't bind another man's conscience with your rules, whatever side of the fence you're on. Be a true ambassador of God's word, not a false one. Coming to conclusions about this issue is not, like I said before, it's not easy. There's a lot to think about. It takes wisdom to wrestle with these things, but it also takes grace. It takes discernment, understanding, study, but it also takes humility. And if love is not guiding our discussions about music or any other issue, don't discuss it. There's no point. Teach the word. Don't teach opinion. What are the principles that should guide us as a church? There are many. We could take the next five hours and go through the New Testament. We could take the next five weeks and go through the New Testament and really learn how we should be treating each other all the time. I want to go just through a few of them with you this morning to give a contrast and lighten up a little bit from what I've been saying. I'd like you to turn, and I'm going to have you turn to all these verses just so we can read them together as a church. Principle number one, be at peace with each other. That's non-negotiable. God has commanded this of you, and he's commanded it of me. I am to live at peace with you. God died so that we could have peace with him and so that we could have peace with each other. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Let's just look at a few of these. Guess what? If I'm in the wrong chapter, that's not the verse I wanted. Let's move on. Romans 12, 18. Skip the mark one. I'll get that corrected. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. possible if possible is it possible yes it's possible if possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men uh, Matthew 5 9 in the middle of the Beatitudes Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. I'm just going to move quickly through them. Romans 14, verse 19. If you don't want to turn, that's okay. I'll just read them. I'll give you a second. Romans 14, 19. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are just sampling over and over and over again in the New Testament. We are called to be at peace with each other as brothers in Christ. Be at peace with one another. Second one, love one another. There's differing opinions as to how many times this is said in the New Testament, but generally it's somewhere between 230 and 290 times. In one way or another, God commands us to love one another. John 13, we all know this. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. By the music you listen to. No, it isn't. They will know that you are a disciple of God by the love that you share with your brother and how you treat him. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Verse 17, same chapter. This I command you, that you love one another. Thirdly, we're to be responsible to mutually encourage each other. Look at Romans chapter 1. Verses 11 and 12. Do you think Paul agreed with everything in the lives of these Roman believers? You think he applied everything exactly the same way they did? I guarantee you he didn't. And yet what does he say to them in verse 11, chapter 1? For I long to see you. I want to be with you. So that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established and that is that I may be encouraged together with you while I'm among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That should characterize our lives. Mutual encouragement. Be an encouragement to other people. Let other people be an encouragement to you. Hebrews chapter 10. I think we all know these verses pretty well. Verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a limited time on this earth. Why are we wasting it? Fourth principle, honor other people as greater than yourself. Romans chapter 12, since you're in Romans. Verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Philippians 2, 3. It's right there. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Fifth principle. Be humble and submit to one another. 1 Peter 5, 5. Younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility. 
toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. This is at the end of that passage. It starts actually in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Sixth principle. Be of the same mind and live in harmony with each other. Go back to Romans 12. Verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Same book, chapter 15, verse 5. Now, the, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus. Seventh principle. Build one another up. Right there in Romans, chapter 14, verse 9. Hmm. I don't think that's the one I want. I'll read it anyway. It's a good verse. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. That's not what I wanted. Oh, it's 19. I just left the one out. Sorry. 14, 19. So then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and... The building up of one another. First Thessalonians five eleven. Therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Ephesians four sixteen. from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Principle number eight, there are to be no divisions in the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 25 and 26. 1 Corinthians 12 is that great illustration of the church as a body with many members, each member having a different function and gifted in different ways. Verse 25, that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Galatians 6.2 gives us kind of the opposite view. 
rather than looking to divide, look to restore, look to bear one another's burdens. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Principle number nine, be hospitable to one another. These aren't choices we can make. These are things we have to do. They are commanded to us. 1 Peter 4.9. I'll read verse 8 too because it's kind of along the same lines. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And that hospitality is more than just opening up your home for lunch. Hospitality is an attitude where you are inviting people into your life and not keeping them out. Romans 12 again, verse 13. In this list of commands that Paul gives to the church at Rome, he includes, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. If your conviction or your practice about any of the contemporary issues of life in regards to Christian living causes you to not be at peace, to not live in harmony with, to not encourage your brother, to not honor your brother as more important than you, to not be humble, to not submit to one another, to not live in harmony with him, to not build him up, to be divided, or to not be hospitable, then may I submit that you're the one who's in sin. Or I'm the one who's in sin. We can't throw away New Testament principle so that we can tenaciously grip onto our practices. These things are critical, my brothers and my sisters in the faith. How we handle our discernment between principle and practice will either build us up to a great degree or it'll blow this church up. Our obedience to the clear and multiple principles in the New Testament regarding our attitude and our behavior toward each other cannot be ignored. And it must not be supplanted by us wanting to be right. Let God's word be God's word. When Pastor Dan gets behind this pulpit in a few weeks and delivers an exposition on the principles that should govern our decisions, our theology, our understanding of, and ultimately our practice of music, learn the principles. Learn them well. Know what they are. Defend them. But I beg of you, do not let your personal convictions about music or anything else override biblical principle and cause division. It's just not worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for 
the opportunity to be together this morning. And Lord, I have no idea how people will receive what has been said. But Lord, I believe in my heart that those things are right and true. I pray that you'd help us as a church, fellowship, Bible church, to practice New Testament principles with eagerness. I pray that we would do all in our power to live at peace with each other, that we would love one another, that we would be hospitable toward each other, that we would not cause division, that we would grow and be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, that we would build one another up, that we would submit to one another, that we would count other people as being more important than ourselves. For in these things, you are glorified and lifted up. Lord, when we worship you, when we say that we want to bring glory to you, this is how to do it. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to the words of faith, to be obedient to the words of truth. Help the gospel, Lord, to be the center of our life, where everything that we do and think, and especially when it comes to matters of disagreement among believers, help us, Lord, to not throw these principles out the window, but to follow them seek after them. Help us, Lord, to be true students of your word and not just rest on what other people have said, not just rest on maybe what we have thought for so long, but to not be ashamed at your coming because we have been students of your word, because we have studied and we have rightly divided it. Father, you are good. Help, help us, Lord, to rally as a church around the things that will bring us together. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Help us to never grow weary of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to never grow weary of studying your word. May these things draw us together and help us to be a stronger body. Father, I pray that um, we would be encouraged by these things, not discouraged and that you would use these words in all of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.